Hello everyone, my name is Paul O'Leary. Welcome to The Exchange, COVID-19 and Beyond, a podcast where we bring together thought leaders and stakeholders making an impact on society. With me as always, I have my two co-hosts, Margaret O'Leary, CEO of the American Business Council, the voice of American businesses in Nigeria, and Tony Adebita Moore, Executive Director for West Africa of the African Venture Philanthropy Alliance. Thank you, Paul. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Exchange COVID-19 and Beyond. Today, we will focus on updates on the private sector across Africa. And at this point, I would like to introduce my co-host and very good friend, Tony Adeguitemo, Tam. Thank you, Margaret. Our guest today is Paula Laoye, CEO of Health Africa, who will be sharing insights on the current healthcare space in Nigeria. Before we go to our guests, let's briefly discuss the dialogue we had with the U.S. Ambassador to Nigeria, Mary Beth Leonard, who shared engagements with the federal government and the COVID-19 support from the U.S. government. Yeah, that's true. One of the things I, I, I loved about yesterday was the interaction, the very interesting interaction. And that brings me to the question um, you, you, you asked. Uh, you know about the uh, the African Medicines Agency and how uh, the U.S. Co- government can collaborate strengthening drug security because this is really critical at this point to ensure um, stability and um, continuous supplies in the in the essential medicines as well as reducing um, issues around counterfeit. So, so, I mean, I really love um, that, that question. Absolutely, Maggie. Uh, one thing that stood out for me was the, the fact that, again, you know, and, and what is obvious to all of us um, about this, you know, the dawn of this um, pandemic, is the fact that we need to strengthen our healthcare system all across Africa. And, and so the more we can, again, look at um, less dependency on China and India on our pharmaceuticals, but leveraging our um, our own, you know, domestic, um, if you will, production and investment, and and hopefully leveraging on the um, the you know the new African platform that's um, you know, to help us make sure that this free trade agreement among African countries can be um, one that we can leverage on in order to boost up our domestic production and investment. Yeah, sure. And um, in fact, I I, I agree with you completely. I I also believe that because at the last podcast, we had uh, some guests share their insights about what is happening in Canada. So I think we need to bring back to the fore and um, look at what is happening in other states. Um, so far, we, we know that uh, we are seeing more of private sector stakeholders' support from different, um, from different quarters. We've had, um, for instance, that uh, the flour mills uh, distributed 35,000 testing kits in Abuja, Kanu, Lagos, and some other areas in the country. And also, we, um, we also heard about the... Uh, lockdown relaxation in some areas in the country and where some states in spite of uh, the lockdown have decided to uh, the relaxation of the lockdown have decided to have their own um, customized lockdown 
like River State, uh, bringing a lot of uh, private sector organizations, getting um, worried about how they are going to be operating out of there. So a lot of things are happening. But I would say that it's 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 quite uh, reassuring now that we are seeing some tension towards camp. And I'm hoping that we're, we're going to see a lot more of that as the weeks move on. It's really interesting to see the initiatives across Africa to support the health system. So today we have a very special guest. She's the first female to chair the board of the um, asset management, a financial advisory firm, um, FSDH Asset Management. Uh, a financial advisory firm. She's also the founder and chief executive officer of Health Markets Africa. She was previously the director of West Africa Investments at the Investment Fund for Health in Africa, a board member of Hygia Group Nigeria, promoters of Hygia HMO, and Lagoon Hospital, where she held various leadership roles for over 18 years. Um, so, you know, please join me in welcoming Thank you very much, Dwayne. We want to know exactly what um, the health market Africa has been to since its inception. Sure. And thanks, Maggie and Tony, for having me on. Um, yeah, so as you said, um, you know, I have been in healthcare for quite a while now, about 20, 22, 23 odd years. And most of that time I spent uh, with Hygieia, uh, growing Hygieia, you know, um, from what was a small family business at the time to then become a more sort of financial, shall I say, healthcare institution. And doing so, you know, both on the demand side and the supply side, demand side being the HMO with health insurance and the supply side with hospitals and clinics and other worksite clinics and different delivery models. So at the time when um, my time with Hygieia was done, um, you know, I sort of put my thinking hat on and, and looked at, okay, how could I bring the skills I learned there? And one of the key skills I had, I had learned apart from obviously looking at the healthcare landscape in Nigeria and other parts of Africa, also in realizing the depth of financing and really doing a lot to plug that in terms of raising investments for each year. And then thought, how could I, sort of, having seen what I learned, what I had learned, how would it be most useful? And it was part of that that Health Markets Africa was, was sort of created as an advisory and an investment company, supporting the growth of health systems still and thinking through strategy, organizational growth, financing and investments uh, across the healthcare value. So we've worked with hospital clinics, pharmaceutical companies, both retail and manufacturing, with health insurance and digital health, healthcare technology platforms. And we invested in a few of them as well. So that that way, and of course, diagnostics as well, but really realizing that the whole ecosystem of private healthcare still needs, you know, quite a bit of work to be strengthened, to be scaled up, be institutionalized, and to be properly funded. So that's really what we are about. What do you think we should have done or we could do to mitigate, mitigate the challenges? I have been following the COVID situation when I sort of took a more active interest 
and started following the sort of the literature, what the science of it was saying, also following what WHO was saying. And it was clear that, you know, uh, even as the way it started uh, globally, no one was really prepared. And because of it, it was very difficult to track the data that was coming from elsewhere, very diff- difficult to model it and to even project. It took until mid-March, really, before the world really started to understand the need for the public health measures and lockdown. And in that context, I think certainly Africa, I mean, even though Africa has been further behind the curve, I mean, to be honest, the first case in Nigeria was end of, was February 26 or 27. And then even other parts of Africa, you know, cases started popping up sort of early March. By then, I think most countries in Africa, Nigeria included, had acted quite swiftly to think about, you know, public health measures, started uh, mounting campaigns of hand washing, taking temperature, you know, even beginning to think a little bit about social distancing. So all those things happened, I would say, and, and fairly quickly. And then on top of that, it came, you know, closing of airports. I think, you know, most African countries, Nigeria included, did that by mid-March, which was pretty much around the same time that the U.S. was doing that. I think that's the things that I would say we probably did well, you know, in terms of, you know, closing off airports and then eventually going into a lockdown. Um, We did do those things well because I guess we realized that, look, there's, you know, for us in Africa, given the state of our healthcare system, you know, the idea or even sort of seeing cases, you know, or seeing sort of the rapid growth in cases that had been seen elsewhere was something that we just couldn't even contemplate where we were. So I, I would say that, yes, we did try on that side. But I think the key issues, when I, mean, I think about what could we have done and what we still even be doing better is testing. I mean, WHO said it, it was their mantra, test, 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 so that that would be know what we're dealing with and we can even plan and we can project and we can protect our people. But the fact that the testing uh, numbers have been very low, particularly here in Nigeria and even across Africa, has been of a key concern. I think testing in Africa now is somewhere about 500,000, 600,000 uh, tests have been done. But you can imagine that's across 2 billion people. And of course, even of that number, a great amount has been South Africa. South Africa has done, I think, 300 to almost 400,000 tests out of that number, so almost two-thirds. Of course, Nigeria, we're still seeing, uh, you know, less than 30,000 have been tested. And that's a very difficult picture. I think it's difficult in a couple of ways. First of all, we don't really know what the real level of, say, of incidence uh, prevalence, uh, where we're identifying a prevalence level that perhaps is higher than it should be, because those who are being tested right now are those who are really at risk, and therefore, from you know that perspective, it, you know the numbers are, the odds are you know more along the lines of seeing more positives than not. Whereas if we were doing a bit more global testing across the country. Would give us a proper sense of what real prevalence rate is. Um, so I think that's still something that you know needs to be at least uh, we still need to figure out how we really sort of integrate testing into our strategy. And if I look at South Africa, 49% of the testing South Africa did was in this, was done by private sector labs. 
So South Africa brought in all the big labs very quickly who had competence and really you know, allowed the population to, you know, uh, <clears throat> to go in and get their tests done. And, but of course, with the right level of reporting and surveillance so that the numbers could be captured clearly uh, at the national level. I mean, key concern is COVID-19 is a notifiable disease, given that it's a, it's a pandemic. And therefore, you want to make sure that all numbers are accounted for. I know that that will always be a concern yeah, in Nigeria. Testing could potentially happen and the numbers don't show up in the books because people want to do it privately. People don't want to be stigmatized. They don't want to know their status and so on. But I believe that we are a bit more um, mature, even, shall I say, as a healthcare system, even than we were when we had HIV AIDS, even uh, the onslaught of HIV AIDS 20 years ago, just to the extent that we can capture the data, whether public or private, and put it in the system. So I think that's something that needs to be looked at, how we open that up. The other key issue, of course, is how do we suddenly grow our capacity to treat patients overnight, literally? Because we know that you know the, num- the, the capacity we have from a point of view of healthcare system is also extremely low. You know, we know that we have less than one bed per 1,000 population. We definitely have less than 0.5 uh, physicians or doctors per 1,000 population. So. Even just as a healthcare system that is dealing with the myriad of healthcare issues, we certainly are already extremely facing an undercapacity. And then having to isolate some of that capacity to treat COVID is even a more challenging task. So I guess that's why we, you know, the conversations and the work started around building isolation centers and trying to equip them and so on. And ventilators suddenly became a household word and everybody was on the hunt for ventilators. And of course, PPE is the other household word. But again, these are things that are happening globally, not just here but just really being magnified. So I guess what I'm saying that the whole concept of putting a critical care system in place for those who will be very ill from COVID is still a, a, a challenge. Um, certainly, you know, we're not seeing the same level of socialized severe illness here that we've seen in the West with COVID, really because we have a much younger population. You know, the average age in Nigeria is 18, whereas in Italy and places like that that had been really badly hit, it was 60, 65, the UK, the US. And therefore, you know, there were older people with more online uh, illnesses, comorbidities, as they call it, that they are dealing with, hypertension, you know, um, uh, heart disease of different forms. But here we have a younger, healthier population in many ways. Um, and therefore, you know, we have not seen the same level of need for the very severe, uh, you know, and the um, type of critical care. But having said that, as the numbers increase, we will still see our own fair share. And to do so, to look after that share uh, appropriately, you know, the question is whether we have built enough critical care to handle it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Paula. You know, um, when we talk about the, the fact that we have a group of population in um, Nigeria. And we're beginning to see uh, in other countries some what I now call the different, various or different phases of COVID, uh, where you, be, you have children, 
and um, uh, young adults, you know, about 18 and, and less coming up with uh, the Kawasaki disease. And when you see a lot of young people, maybe um, still under the age of 40, coming down with this disease and not having underlying ailments, you need to ask yourself, uh, perhaps you know, where, where we need to um, take this a lot more, uh, not, not that we're not taking it seriously, but we need to begin to prod more. Um, and, and strengthen the, the various healthcare systems to a point to have, to have things ready. Um, should we begin to see these um, mutating phases of, of COVID? Um, so, so but, but again, I want to run on the thread of what the government did right and 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 and, and what perhaps we could have done better to to also look at uh, right now uh, the area of healthcare investing to the new normal era. I'm wondering, um, uh, there's a lot of positive prognoses for the healthcare sector. And, and so what are those um, short-term and long-term uh, goals that you, you think the government can put in place to attract investors into Nigeria? How we step up in Nigeria to what the rest of the world is also, has also keyed in to of universal health coverage becomes more and more critical, especially at a time when we are seeing, I mean, the first wave in modern times of the global pandemic, but again, is being very much touted as it won't be the last. I think the fact that we don't have a universal health system is a big challenge. If you look at the way in which the UK has been able to rise up and in other parts of Europe, clearly because they have had, you know, health systems that are extremely developed and are extremely well accessible has been key. If you look at the US, US has been interesting because the US is more of a mixed system, which um, is their own sort of setup, being a federal uh, uh, um, country and so on. Um, it's one whereby, yes, you can see that they have sort of suffered to some extent because access has been an issue for certain, um, you know, um, populations or target groups. And certainly equity of the type of care that we received has also been an issue. But at the same time, though, we had a government who stepped in really and stepped in strongly and put billions and billions of dollars on the table <clears throat> to be able to create that equity. So the point is, universal health coverage, which has some level of equity, is important for us as we go forward. The question is, how do we get there? And how do we attract the kind of investments that it needs? I think first and foremost, we have to think about you know, the financing perspective. I mean, overall healthcare expenditure in Nigeria is still far too low. It is less than $70 per capita. And with government's own share of that funding being about 30-35%, which is about $25 per capita. Now, $25 per capita is still probably 50% of what WHO advocates for primary healthcare only. Primary healthcare only is advocated to be at a minimum of $45 to the right package of care that will cover uh, maternal uh, health, will cover child, infant and child health, that will cover malaria, you know, and all the key other infectious diseases that we see. And we'll also do some primary care work for even 
now the more uh, lifestyle diseases have, that are now creating in the chronic diseases. So certainly, we have such a huge gap in in terms of funding of healthcare in Nigeria, and, and especially so from government side. And I think that is still key issue that needs to be addressed. Now, one of the ways in which we have, you know, we stepped up and started addressing it about sort of 15, almost 20 years ago was, you know, the birth of health insurance. The key issue is that Nigeria, even the health insurance platform started up uh, in 1999, well, more, uh, more formally in 2005, I believe. Um, the numbers have stagnated. We only have less than 6 million Nigerians covered, which is still just 45% of our population. Whereas if you look at other sub-Saharan African countries, Ghana has 33% coverage, Kenya 20%, Gabon 22%, South Africa 17%, and so on. And that has led to having almost 60 million people now having health insurance in Africa. So we know that health insurance coverage is a key issue. And in fact, at the recent ONGA meeting, the universal coverage target is 30% of the population, which is 54 million individuals who will need to be registered in health insurance schemes. You can imagine if there's a marketplace, 54 million individuals with insurance premiums and coverage being covered. The investments in the infrastructure for healthcare, in human resource for healthcare will be immense. Just again, if I liken it to what is going on in Kenya, at the moment, our health insurance premiums here in Nigeria are again tracking a capita spend, so roughly $75 per head. In Kenya, uh, health insurance per, um, premiums are somewhere between $250 and $300 per head. And the healthcare system in Kenya is therefore much, much more robust has a care system all the way up to the most acute specialties required, has a good sort of strength, a bench strength of human resources. So we know that, you know, rebuilding this, the demand side is, is a key aspect of really being able to harness investment. Similarly, in South Africa recently, and towards the end of last year, pronounced their own legislation for health insurance were very much based on a single payer with government being very much at the forefront. But the important thing was they costed universal health coverage to be $17 billion that they need to spend by 2026. So it's clear the more uh, coverage is done, then the more we can really uh, you know, attract investments. Now, talking about investment and all of the works that you've been doing, recently we heard about the Young Professional Association, which you're very much a part of. About the Young Professional Association, what inspired you and the team to set up a COVID isolation center and what went into this? Okay, thank you. So, the EPO is actually a global organization, uh, which literally, you know, has membership from every single country and in fact, most major cities across the world. And therefore, we tend to sort of still have a, a, a view that is a global view because we all touch base, even though we are such a big and uh, global organization, we are also much a community that focuses on lifelong learning and how do we also make that we can uh, give back to our community. 
So in doing so, we are we are very connected, and and it it gave us a sort of bird's eye view of watching the situation across the world as COVID was sort of rearing its head, and a lot of our members globally mobile traveling very often. So by early March, we had all started started to, to see what was going on in Europe, particularly, and thinking through what would it mean if COVID came into Africa in a big way. So those discussions had started, not just with white people in Lagos, it had started also with white people in Joburg, you know, in, in Nairobi, you know, across the continent. But here in Lagos, you know, we then looked at it and said, one of the key things we felt was this uh, undercapacity on the healthcare side. And how could we really sort of work towards supporting that? So we, we a few of us on, on the, on the uh, YPO team in Lagos here are from healthcare uh, sector, you know, we're healthcare professionals and, and healthcare managers like myself. So we, we got together with a few other non-healthcare members to rally the YPO community. And we then got to work with the idea of this field hospital, this isolation center. And you know, in doing so, we looked at what Wuhan had done and the way in which they had built that field hospital of a thousand beds in nine days. We costed the project, raised, we, we went out to raise funds. We approached Lagos State and negotiated with Lagos State in how to put together such a center, knowing that this is in the middle of a pandemic and it's a notifiable disease. And we had to do it under the purview of, of state management. Uh, built and equipped the center in three weeks and in the same time also hired and trained clinical and non-clinical staff and we opened our doors and since then we've looked after a, a good significant number of people who have come in COVID positive and has left and have been discharged from the center COVID negative. So we realized that acting quickly and acting in time was important as the numbers were beginning to creep up so that that way we could really, you know, put in much needed added capacity into the system. Do you think this can be replicated uh, in other states um, like Kano? My understanding is that that has started already. I mean, we've seen projects, the Aliko Dangote Foundation is doing, Kakovid is doing, uh, there's been the This Day Center that's been done in Abuja. I believe that, yes, even again, with the same, at least, eye on agility and trying to put things up. I believe certainly it is possible and, and it is happening. We have also talk, talked about uh, insurance, or at least we hear about insurance for uh, frontline workers. Uh, mm. what, is, what is it like in Nigeria when maybe you compare this with other countries like South Africa and, and Kenya? And, and, and again, there are some other frontline workers that have been off radar, like. Uh, like the, the, the media, the press, we've seen, you know, in other countries that some of this press gentlemen have, or, and ladies have come down with, uh, with the virus. So I, I just want you to share your thoughts on this as well. Well, I mean, given that COVID is pandemic, um, I do know that in most parts of the world, pandemics are, tend to be excluded from healthcare schemes, uh, health insurance schemes largely because you know the risk once the pandemic is there then the risk is 100 is, is close to 100 percent you know and and therefore it's very becomes difficult to ensure you know particularly where there is an at-risk population 
um, I may be exaggerating when I say 100%, but at least it's higher than, uh, than the norm. And therefore, um, integrating that into a normal health insurance scheme you know, can be very difficult and very expensive. It would shoot up the premium significantly. And that's why, again, you know, most places, you know, exclude them. What we've done, at least what has happened in, in, in Lagos, and I, I'm not sure to what extent it's being implicated in other states though, was that the key insurance companies, some key insurance companies actually got together, led by Leadway Insurance, ICO, Custard and a few others, put together a special coverage. So it's like a carve-out insurance for healthcare and frontline workers to cover life insurance, health insurance and disability, all due to COVID. And this, of course, has been uh, a major, major, uh, shall I say, you know, uh, breath of, you know, of, you know, of fresh air and has been gratefully received, particularly by the workers themselves, knowing that at least this is in place for them. Now, of course, we've also ensured that the workers have health insurance in place for other um, kind of care in case, you know, they you know they you know stop their tour or whatever if they need some other kind of healthcare then certainly insurance is important that they you know, can look after them but particularly for COVID this scheme you know has been something that has has certainly been a game changer. Thank you very much. Um, wonderful insights. Um, just one last question uh, before we let you go today. Um, and before we, we end our episode, um, what, what advice on what other roles the private sector um, can play at this point? You know, what, what do you think uh, private sector should do beyond donations, beyond the collaborations with you know, private sector, public sector? What, what other advice do you think around the roles that private sector should play? I think private sector has to see themselves as a key stakeholder in the healthcare system, and particularly at a time like this. Um, you know, because again, as I said before, when I think about the amount of you know of expenditure being held, um, spent in healthcare, almost seventy percent of that is spent out of private pockets and private hands. Anyway, so they are already a big stakeholder, both from a demand side and a funding side as well as even from the supply side. And I think it's important that we realize that um, we can definitely come together as key stakeholders. We can leverage um, our abilities um, to come up with solutions. Um, if I look at the way in which we, you know, like I mentioned, the way we put together the center uh, in, in ETS at the landmark, it certainly was because, again, you know, we took it almost as the, almost like a company and, you know, brought in all the different vast facets of a company that we required, whether it was the, you know, the engineering and infrastructure side, whether it was the people, whether it was funding and so on. And then of course, brought in the right level of supervision, the right level of transparency in terms of uh, usage of funds and so on. So I think there is something about the way um, private sector both brings efficiency as well as performance, you know, and transparency to projects that is important, especially at a time like this. We've seen it 
that I mean, I may need to be much closer to the healthcare side of things and see this need. I think we've also seen it across the board when we, when we think about the livelihood issues that we have had to face due to the lockdown and where we found the fact that, look, people do, you know, a great variety of the Nigerian population lives on a daily wage and just losing that wage means going hungry. And therefore, the level in which the private sector has sprung up to also support with food banks and community projects has been extremely, extremely important. But again, doing so, yes, one is bringing their money to the table. But the other is bringing their, their, you know, acumen, their infrastructure, their skills of management, you know, and of delivery and of performance and measuring the performance. I think all of that is extremely important at a time like this. So on that note, I just wanted to thank again, La Laoye, the founder and chief executive officer of Health Markets Africa. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your insights. And um, I want to thank my co-host, Maggie um, from the African Business Council and Paulo Lilly um, as well um, for all the work today. And again, we want to tell our listening audience to please take good care of yourself, um, observe all the um, hygiene, you know, that you need to do in terms of washing your hands, practicing physical distancing, and until our next episode, stay well and stay safe. Thank you.